Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Squarespace and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Jason. How are you today? I'm doing great. I enjoyed your performance on the uh, the Relay Podcast-a-thon last week. Thank you. If uh, If you didn't catch that, there'll be a link in the show notes. It capped off a month of fundraising for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. We raised over a quarter of a million dollars, which is absolutely just incredible. incredible. Uh, if you have not donated or you want to learn more, we've got a link in the show notes, stjude.org slash liftoff. Go check it out. Oh, nice. I like that URL. That's a good mm-hmm. one. All right. We have a lot of topics today. It's been a very busy fortnight. Yes. As it always is, we can just stop saying that at this point. It's always going to be busy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what we did is we put out a uh, request for proposals, and then we did some funding of contracts Mm -hmm. for speculative uh, segments. That's right. And the contractors came back, and then we needed to go to the Senate for approval of our budget to build the segments. There's going to be a lot of that in this episode, is what I'm saying. There is. But let's start start way out, Stephen, with the pre-flight. I I want us to take the pre-flight checklist and go... Out of the solar system. Okay. I want to talk to you about an exoplanet. Oh, yeah. It has water. It's in mm-hmm. the habitable zone of its star. We're saved. Mm-hmm. End of story. Mm-mm. This is one of those deals that it sounds better in the headline. And then as you read more about it, you're like, oh, maybe this isn't quite yeah. Earth 2. It's, it's great. Will. And then it's oversold. And then you back it off. And then you find you know, Mm -hmm. encouragement in it. It Really, there's a lot of mood swings in this one. That's right. Uh, So this is a super Earth, twice our size, nine times the mass. So think about it as like a hot mini Neptune. Not not so much like a bigger Earth, but a hot, small Neptune. Its atmosphere is hot. It's thick. It's full of hydrogen. It's probably no life. It's not really the yep. recipe that we know, at least mm-hmm. uh, based on life here in, in our little planet. But, okay, so we made the headlines, there's water here. Uh, there is some uh, a glimpse of water va- vapor uh, from the Kepler survey that it was a part of. And this method can be used to find water on other exoplanets that are more Earth-like. So just because this one may have some water vapor and it's not really habitable to at least life like us doesn't mean that there's not other exoplanets. So that's not true of, but uh, this is a, a, yet another chapter in the the Kepler survey, uh, a mission that just keeps on giving results and will continue to give results. I think for a long time, we spoke about this years ago uh, when the, when the survey was actually going on, that this is going to be a, a trickle of research and data out for years and this is another example of it. Even though uh, exoplanet uh, K218b is not necessarily for us, it is an interesting place and it's a place that we wouldn't know about without Kepler. Yeah, so it, it, K218b found with a K2 survey, which is really awesome. And then the, the part of this that I think is the most amazing scientifically is that they used Hubble, knowing the that there was an exoplanet here orbiting around a uh, red dwarf so the habitable zone is much smaller it's much closer to the star and uh so you're also getting you know results about water vapor and, and atmosphere on a planet around one of these cool small red dwarfs that we that there are a lot of in uh, in the galaxy and they point hubble at it and they're looking for that moment where there's there's a moment where the planet is passing in and out of the star and they can they can do a spectroscopy on the light passing through the atmosphere of the exoplanet and see the composition of the atmosphere. That is bananas. It is. But that's what they did. So there are two different teams using results from Hubble. And based on an exoplanet that they knew about because of Kepler. And then all the headlines are water on an exoplanet. And the answer is really more like water vapor. And it's not a place that you could live. But still, this is a milestone because 
I feel like this is the early days of this whole new phase of exoplanet study mm-hmm. where we're going to start to get things that we could not have even conceived of getting before, like atmospheric compositions of exoplanet atmospheres. That's bananas. Right. But and this technology isn't fine-grained enough to tell us how much water vapor is in this atmosphere. It could be very little or it could be a lot. Now, the other signs and things we know about this particular exoplanet point to it not being a lot. Right. But there's a possibility that there could be more like lower down. But again, it's yes, it's not a super fine grained bit right. of it, um, science. It's here. not like you're getting a readout of exact percentages in the atmosphere. <laughs> right. It's just a sign that it is present. Uh, but yeah, super, super neat. And what I like about this uh, story with the Hubble involvement, this is a use for Hubble that was not on the radar when Hubble launched, right? The, the scientific community that has access to Hubble uses it for things that uh, it ne- wasn't necessarily uh, in the scope at the beginning. But as technology has progressed and these new uh, techniques become available using hardware that's already there, uh, I always like stories like that. Yeah, for sure. K-12, 18B. So we're taking it uh, off the vacation list, but it's out there doing mm. its thing. If you're thirsty and passing through. Yeah. Maybe you could scrape some water vapor out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have had a visitor. Tell mm-hmm. us about this. Yeah. So I got a comet. It's Comet Borisov. It's a, it's a comet. It's got a tail. It's kind of dim. It's kind of boring as a comet. It's a comet. Comets are nice. There are, there are lots of them. <laughs> However, this comet is more interesting because of one thing. Uh, where it came from and where it's going, really, I guess that could be two things, but let's say it's one thing. It it has an orbital eccentricity of uh, 3.2. It is a very, very, very eccentric orbit. Now, to put that in context, most objects in the solar system have an orbital eccentricity between 1 and 0. So 3.2. Basically, it, this, is, this is hyperbolic. This is not something that's coming back, and it didn't start here. It's also moving 30 kilometers a second. So... As we've gotten better at surveying what's in our solar system and what's passing through our solar system, we had the first confirmed interstellar object, Oumuamua. A couple of years ago, uh, they spotted that, I think, and then, or or was it? I think it was just last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comet Borisov, it looks like now the more that we we look at it, that it is going to be the second confirmed interstellar object, which is pretty cool. And the, one of the bits of science that's going on now is everybody's trying to analyze this comet. And you know, the closer it gets to the sun, the more uh, more it's not going to get that close. But the more uh, stuff it's going to throw off, and you can do uh, spectroscopy on the tail, and you can find out what it's composed of. And the idea here is is a comet that came from some other solar system or or at least came from somewhere, you know, who knows where, but somewhere further away than our solar system composed of the same things as our comets are. Because that's a, that's a cool thing. And we can't go to other stars, but we can uh, take a look at stuff as it passes by. So they're uh, looking very closely at this otherwise, you know, kind of normal, humble, as far as we can tell, comet Borisov. But it's a uh, it's motoring. Uh, it's motoring through, and uh, it's it's not moving fast like Oumuamua. It's slow enough that there's time to really analyze it. Its closest approach to the sun is uh, in December, and then it will continue back on out. But uh, again, Stephen, I feel like we always need to say this: it's not aliens. It is a comet. <laughs> Just a comet from a, a, a distant point in the sky. Yeah. It's, you know, the brother from another mother. It's, yeah, sure. It's kind of like that. It's a comet from another brother. Sure. Or something. My my guess is that we are just at the beginning of learning about more and more uh, interstellar visitors that they these have been passing through our solar system for some time. Like the previous case, moving very quickly. And so if we're not looking at the right place at the right moment, we may miss them. But I just I have the feeling that this is going to become a more common story in the future, that now we have spotted a couple of these. Uh, maybe scientists will, will begin to uh, put more uh, energy into finding uh, additional examples. Just just a hunch. I think we'll see more of these types yeah. of stories. I, I think we're paying more close attention and looking for these objects, and we'll see many more of them because they've been passing through all along, and now we're able to see them. I'm just going to say it 
most of the rest of this episode is about Artemis and the arguments and uh, updates that have happened over the last couple of weeks for Artemis. Uh, but before we get into that, you had pulled this Washington Post story about yeah. uh, Brian Stein using his political skills uh, to, to forward this mission. Of course, he spent time in Congress. We've right. spoken a lot about that, how that's highly unusual for a NASA administrator to come from the political world. And a lot of people had reservations about that. I think most of us, I think at least for me, I feel like he's done a pretty good job on the whole, although I do have some complaints here and there, which we'll get to. Uh, but this story really kind of gets into how he's using those skills that he picked up uh, sort of on behalf of, of NASA now. Uh, and what sort of grabbed you in the story? Yeah, I mean, it's a good story. We'll put a link in. It's a Washington Post story about Jim Bridenstine um, and his political challenges that he's got. Because, you know, this is this is the upside of having somebody who is a politician who is uh, in Congress uh, running NASA and we are in one of the most kind of polarized periods in American political history. And uh, the article talks about him trying to get everybody on side in terms of what he's been charged with doing. And that's a challenge because, as you imagine, he he's getting his marching orders from the president and the vice president sort of, you know, broadly from the president and mostly from the vice president. And then he is putting this stuff into effect, but Congress has to fund it. The other party controls one of the houses of Congress. And this is this dream that is uh, about landing somebody on the moon that is tied to uh, a deadline, which is the second term of the president before the end of his second term. And you can imagine that the uh, that the opposition party perhaps would not want to enable going for the glory in the name of the president that they oppose. Sure. So you're Jim Bridenstine. You're like, all right, what do I do here? Because I, I, I don't want to I have to do, um, you know, plausibly what I'm being asked to do by the executive. Um, but at the same time, we can't make it too much about the executive um, or the the democrats will be angry if i make it if i make it not enough about him he'll be angry <laughs> and tweet at me and it's it's just it's a tough job and and i i do think that he has been a very positive force and his he is trying very hard he seems to be working very hard on behalf of nasa to get what nasa needs in terms of funding um, this story talks about how he's he's at NASA Ames in the Bay Area and gets, you know, Nancy Pelosi to say basically fairly positive things about the idea of landing a woman on the moon. Um, he has a challenge because they, you know, they got the senators from uh, Alabama happy because they were going to do the lunar lander stuff in Alabama. That made the senators from Texas unhappy. Um, so he's got to get Texas back on side. And one of the ways that he, he's doing that is with the uh, the Orion stuff that you're going to mention later when we get to that part. Um, you know, and we talk about a lot here, but the fact is NASA is funded by political mechanisms and it only works when you can play that game. When you've either got, you know, when you, you basically want to give a motivation to everybody who is in the legislature to... Um, to fund you they have reasons to have you look good or sure. at least not be seen as being in the way and this story says that Bridenstine is playing that game hard and it seems like pretty well given the lay of the land politically and what he's been charged to do you know then again you see a story like a senate bill that's currently uh passed through a committee that approves a larger nasa budget for next year but it doesn't give them all the money they requested for lunar landers, and it funds the expedition upper stage <laughs> of the SLS. And I know this isn't the SLS segment, but this is a great example of giving Breitenstein money for a thing he doesn't really want and not for the thing he wants. And mm -hmm. that is part of the game, too, and has been across parties and across administrations. I don't envy the guy's job, I can tell you that. No, no, that's the thing, is like, I... Uh, you know, there are. I'm sure that there are people inside NASA who would criticize things that he's doing, and I'm sure there are people who watch NASA very, very closely, and all of the kind of government machinations who would have things to say about what he's doing. But I think you got to admit this is a tough job. I'm not sure you can, you know, you can't please everybody. 
how do you walk that line so that you can be seen by your bosses as doing what they want you to do, but not so much so that the opposition refuses to give you a win. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about where we are right now is when you're talking about 2024, 25, 26, you know, the idea that it might slip, like most people seem to believe that, that Artemis will slip, but everybody wants to put on the fiction that it won't because presumably it would get less support from the president if he won't be theoretically in power when it happens. So I think there's a lot of, you know, consensual hallucinations going on. I think maybe the Democrats in Congress are also thinking we're going to get this guy out and then it'll be our people. Uh, So we might as well lay the groundwork now as long as we're okay with that. And I think that's part of Bridenstine's message is, look, um, and he said this publicly, um, we can't keep going back and forth every time there's a change in power. So can we can we all get on side on this idea that we're going to go to the moon and then we're going to go to Mars and that this is generally how it happens and we can fret about some of the details. But what we don't want to do is have uh, Bush have a plan and then Obama comes and throws that plan away and puts in his plan and then Trump comes in and throws that and the next president does the same. It's like we can't ever get anywhere if we do that. Mm-hmm. And Bridenstine, you know, that that seems to be his strategy anyway to get everybody on side of like, you know, you're going to you're going to have times where you're in power and out of power. We don't really know when this is who which president hits the lottery like Richard Nixon and gets to make a phone call to the surface of the moon, but can we as a country kind of just keep pushing it forward and you know, he seems to be doing okay with it, but it's it's hard. It's a tough job. I wouldn't want it either. We're not going to spend really much time on this Senate bill uh, for sort of my interest. Now, it happens when they have a reconciled budget. but Yeah, and this is a, this is a committee. It's not even yeah. past the Senate, and then they yeah. have to reconcile it with the House if they can even do that. And then, yeah, yeah it's, it's a long way off. But it, it is telling, isn't it, that the senators got their got their digs in Mm -hmm. by by marking it up the way they did so so we will come back to the nasa 2020 budget when it's a little more solid is what we're saying the uh the the thing that gets me with this and this is kind of where we're going to end up at the end of the episode is like nasa has got to do something within its power to to get everyone in line because 2024 is is coming up quick but we're gonna we're gonna circle back to that at the end of the episode uh before we get there i want to tell you about our first sponsor this episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Space! Make your next move with Squarespace. Woo! Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you need a website with an online store and a portfolio, or maybe you want to start a blog or a podcast. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that, and there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about, no software updates or upgrades you have to to concern yourself with because Squarespace has got it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name to use with your site. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I want to talk a little bit about that 24-7 customer support. I've been helping somebody build a Squarespace site, and I wanted to have video in the background in this banner. And I, and I played with it, and I couldn't quite figure it out. and had some questions about the format that I needed, and their customer support was great. I was able to open a ticket. They got back with me really quickly, and I was on my way. Didn't really slow me down at all because their support is top-notch. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for the support of the show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Space! Squarespace. It is time, Jason. We teased it earlier. It's time mm-hmm. for the SLS segment. Space launch system segment system, explaining system, geopolitics, system, mechanical systems, systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. Trivia. Doing a little harmony there. That was good. I, I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> I like how it's always different. You know, yeah. that we haven't really settled on anything years nah, into this. Why settle? Why yeah. settle? Although, I, you, one could argue... Oh man, 
Sorry. Oh, no. Sorry, SLS fans. One could argue that settling is what the SLS is all about. Hey-o. All right. It's good. We spoke a couple episodes ago about the core stage of the first SLS and the uh, the the lower section that basically attaches the RS-25 motors to the core stage, how that was built vertically and the SLS was horizontal and you got to match them up somehow. And a couple of days ago, NASA announced that that progress has been made, that the engine stage has been uh, mated to the core stage. So the core stage of the first SLS is coming along pr- pretty nicely now. There's still work to do. They, have, they need to fit the RS-25 engines. Those are uh, old upgraded shuttle engines, of course. Uh, they got to be integrated into the stage, so you got to run fuel and controls and avionics and telemetry and all, all that stuff to them. Uh, that is going to take place between now and the end of the year, and then this core stage will be sent to Stennis for its green run, which we talked a lot about, the full, full-scale, full full-length uh, test stand firing of the SLS. So that is all on track for uh, the end of this year. And then the Artemis 1 core stage will be pretty much ready to go. Part of this is the structural testing of the liquid hydrogen tank inside the core stage. That, uh, along with a lot of other testing, takes place at uh, Marshall uh, Space Flight Center in Huntsville, uh, where I went last year, or when did we go? Two years ago now, to the State of NASA event. Yeah, I think it's coming up two years now. Wow, that's wild. And uh, they had uh, a t- t- test stands and other things built for this. And uh, basically what they, what they wanted to do is make sure that the uh, liquid hydrogen tank can handle all of the stresses it will undergo during flight. And, of course, you have vibration and noise, but you also have extreme temperature. And so they ran it through 37 separate test cases. And these tests are not only, okay, what do we expect that it will experience, but they go – uh, and exceed what engineers expect during launch. So they want to have plenty of margin, and the the liquid tank did great. So the, the final test used 80,000 gallons of liquid nitrogen to simulate the, the uh, really cold temperatures you get when this fuel is loaded on, and uh, everything seemed to be good to go for this uh, block one initial... SLS design. Of course, if you think back through SLS history, we've spoken a lot about the multiple blocks that this will take place when you get the, uh, you mentioned earlier, the uh, exploration upper stage, uh, moving to the block 1B, more powerful, and that testing is now beginning to make sure that these tanks will handle the additional strain and additional uh, weight and thrust that they will experience in the the later versions of the rocket. So people are busy, busy at Marshall getting all that ready. The last, or, or, or not the last, <laughs> that'll be nice when I can say that truthfully. Uh, <laughs> but another open item uh, that was in this article is looking at the uh, flight software and how it integrates with the ground system software. We spoke about this probably a couple of months ago where a lot of the, the ground side of this has been done now. A lot of the ground control stuff is, is ready to go. Uh, at the Cape, um, but this integration uh, will take place at Marshall, and that is also on the to-do list for the rest of this year, to making sure that the rocket and the ground can communicate uh, clearly with each other. Of course, vitally important work. So the headline here is that the, S- the first SLS core stage is basically rocking and rolling, and again, this is not a reusable core stage, so uh, they got to do it again and again, but... Uh, this first one for this Artemis One test flight in late 2020, early 2021 is uh, making its way through the process. Let's talk a little bit about Orion capsules and about government Ooh. purchasing. I know you're super excited about oh, this. Oh, boy. All right. I'm going to file a form in triplicate okay. and hand that in. I'll Thank fax you. that over. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> and then that. We, can, we can hear about Government purchasing. Yeah. Let me go. Uh, I'll check on the facts. I'll get back to with you in three to five business days when I let okay, you know great. that it was received. <laughs> so NASA has uh, ordered a minimum of six, but a maximum of 12 additional Orion spacecraft. Uh, this ordering period is good through sep- September 30th, 2030. 
So this is up to 12 Orion spacecraft over uh, the next 11 years. What these are used for is kind of a big question mark. N- NASA has not, to my knowledge, really given a wide and uh, expansive look at later Artemis missions past the first handful. And we're going to get to maybe why that's the case. Uh, so this number, 6 to 12, is flexible depending on what those missions end up being. We need a little history here to understand where we're going. So in 2006, Lockheed Martin was selected to develop the Orion spacecraft. Of course, this is under the Constellation program launched by President Bush. You alluded to this earlier, how different administrations changed the program and changed the target. Constellation was canceled in 2010 by President Obama, getting rid of the rocket and a lot of the other stuff. But Orion survived that program's demise and became part of the new deep space exploration initiative, you know, the Obama administration looking towards Mars. Under the Trump administration and Mike Pence and these others, now we've inserted the moon back into it. But Orion has survived it all. It, it, it won't die. This capsule will not die. It is uh, constant. It's a constant player across these, these three administrations. So Lockheed Martin is now under this production contract uh, for, again, a minimum of six. And the way this contract works has raised some eyebrows, and it definitely raised mine. Under this agreement, NASA will pay $900 million for the first three Orion capsules, and then 633 for the final three. And again, we're just looking at the minimum six. Just for comparison, I found this online. The Apollo Command Service module, when adjusted for inflation, was about $463 million. So more expensive than that. But it's a bigger capsule. It does a lot more. It's expensive. The stuff's expensive. That's not really my, my hang-up here. What's interesting is that the first six spacecraft are under what is called a cost-plus incentive fee contract. So you remember a couple of weeks ago we spoke about this, how Boeing was in hot water for getting basically big bonuses from NASA, even though SLS has slipped repeatedly. People were up in arms about that. That's because of this sort of purchasing. The contractor receives reimbursement for, obviously, for their work, for building the spacecraft, but then there is a fee structure that is honored regardless of whether it's delivered on time or in budget. So this is the situation that Boeing was in with SLS. So you can see how this benefits the contractor, right? They're not only guaranteed a set amount for their work, but then money on top of that. And that's not tied to the budget or the timeline too tightly. I think it should be, but under this structure, it's not necessarily that way. In 2016, just three years ago, NASA said that it would be working towards fixed fixed pricing contracts, basically across the board when possible. So it's, it's, we're unsure what has changed here. Uh, in the NASA press release, they say it's because uh, it is a uh, an ongoing and complicated project, and they want to have it give everybody lots of flexibility in building these. And the later six would be ordered as a fixed price contract. So, I guess you could say if you're in favor of this move, the first six we need some flexibility, and we're going to make sure that the contractor makes the money they need to make. But after you've made the first six, you, this really should be down to, you know, not, it's like building a car on an assembly line, but it should be known what it takes and that they would move to a fixed price at that point. So if they're over budget, that's the contractor's problem. It's not the taxpayer's problem. Mm. So all of this is going on. Uh, we're going to start seeing these these capsules in the next few years. But the the question of what these are, are used for, I just I keep coming back to. Um, there's a little bit in here about reusability, like you know Artemis one, it's basically very little will be reused, and then uh, starting with Artemis two, I didn't know this until reading this article. Interior components of the spacecraft, including the flight controllers and other electronics, as well as the crew seats and and control panels, will be reflown on Artemis five. And then the Artemis 3 crew module will be reflown as Artemis 6. So Artemis 5 will have the guts of Artemis 2, but a new capsule itself, but a lot of the internals are used. And then moving towards reflying these things uh, later on. So I assume there'll be some sort of mix moving forward of new 
Orion capsules and then refurbished ones flying, or at least ones that are partially refurbished. I think that will play out over time. But again, where these things are going, what they're for, we just don't know. And and I think that and the reusability argument are kind of two sides of a coin where if you're just doing a bunch of lunar missions, maybe NASA will be more likely to reuse capsules and capsule components. But if the later of these orders end up going to Mars or, or be, at least beyond the moon somewhere, maybe those will be new hardware. That's all up in the air at this point. But it's a lot of money. It's a lot of spacecraft. And uh, I don't think NASA's done a good job explaining to the public what they're for yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a fleet of spacecraft. And if we if we look at what we're seeing with commercial crew, which is a very different sort of thing, but the commercial crew and the commercial uh, freight to the space station, like, there's there's reusability happening there. And, you know, how many operative... I mean, I don't know what SpaceX's plan is for how many Crew Dragon or, or uh, Boeing for Starliner that they're going to have. But, you know, if you think about disposable-ish spacecraft and we're ordering six to 12 of them, it's like... Yeah, it's just it, it makes me wonder. Like I get it on one level in the near term term, but the way that this is structured and the and and the number of them and the plan not being entirely clear that they're partially reusable or mm-hmm. something like that. I don't know. It just is yeah, I wonder what's going on here and whether this is part of a bigger plan that is not entirely revealed or whether this is sort of uh you know, we're just trying to do every, we're just trying to push everything down the road a little bit. Just, you know, every, we're going to buy these things and we're going to have to use them because we mm-hmm. will have paid for them. It's like, like right. the SLS in general. Um, the idea is, well, we signed, we're in, we're in a contract now. They're making the spacecraft. So of course we're going to use them. Sure. And and this, these contracts will begin soon because only Artemis one and two have capsules at this point. So uh, we're going to start seeing these new ones roll off the line. And I would expect the usability will increase over time. There's a a note in this Space Flight Now article saying that if the second set of six are ordered, then they will basically be as reusable as possible or reusing as many parts from the previous six as possible. I just I can't help but but worry that this lack of direction is going to be a vulnerability for NASA if there's an administration change, uh, you know, say next year. It's like, you get, what has been going on here? Why why were these ordered? You think about the Apollo days, we have all the different mission types. You know, we've spoken about those as we've worked our way through the Apollo missions. By the way, Apollo 12 uh, coming up pretty soon, uh, mid-November. mid-November. Yep. But th- they had those different missions. And I don't know how clear that was at the beginning, but... At some point, that became clear that this was the general direction, and maybe NASA is unwilling to do that until they settle the the launch vehicle debate. And if SLS ends up not working out, which is still possible, that could limit what they would do, or maybe they don't want to get too far down the road of depending on something like the Falcon Heavy or, or a subsequent commercial vehicle. I don't know. It just it feels like there's something there where some, look, someone at NASA knows what they want these for and why they haven't explained that to the public. Maybe that will become clear over time, but I think it's I think the public is due some sort of explanation because, you know, you're talking about billions, uh, several billion dollars if they order all 12 of these, and that should be explained. For sure. Oh boy. Budgeting. It's the best. Yeah. It's it's uh not fun when we have to do it as people, but when it's in uh billions of dollars. Oh yeah. Hmm. You wanna tell us about our, our second sponsor and then we can talk about the lunar gateway? Sure, sponsors are a good thing to do when uh you're thinking about budgets. This True. episode is brought to you also by Eero. Eero is totally a game changer when it comes to getting internet from anywhere in your house inside and outside you got a backyard you got a front porch get the wi-fi blanketing your house there's always some corner undiscovered corner of your house that you know the wi-fi is bad over there don't go there somebody's over there you're like no 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 step away from that corner go over here where the wi-fi is better it's really annoying 
And Eero can solve this problem. I have had weird dead spots in my house. My house isn't very big, but it is was built in the 50s, and I don't know, something about it. There are places where the Wi-Fi didn't go. They certainly didn't go strongly into the backyard. They certainly didn't go into the front or side of the house where I have smart devices now. But I got Eero, and now all my devices get the Wi-Fi without any trouble at all. You can have a strong signal wherever you need it by using Eero. It's easy to set up. You plug it in to your modem or router, manage it with their app, which is super simple. Also lets you do cool stuff like pause the Wi-Fi while family dinner is happening. So it's like that's a great way to draw children out of their rooms, I found, is you pause the Wi-Fi and there's no internet. And they're like, what just... They're going to come out to find out what just happened at the very least to, to warn you that the internet... Something's happened with the internet. No, it can magically spring back to life uh, after dinner. Uh, you can get alerts if any uh, unknown device tries to join your network. And, of course, most importantly, all the Wi-Fi problems are fixed with Eero. No more dead spots. No more buffeting. Buffeting? Buffering. Buffeting is a thing that would happen in space and be very bad. No more buffering. <laughs> you can get yours fixed as soon as tomorrow by going to Eero.com slash liftoff. That's E-E-R-O dot com slash liftoff. And enter the code liftoff at checkout to get free overnight shipping. You can have it tomorrow. That's E-E-R-O dot com slash liftoff code liftoff at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. Got to use that URL to get the offer. Eero.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff. Thank you, Eero, for filling my house with Wi-Fi and supporting liftoff and all of Relay FM. All right. I want to talk about CubeSats and the Lunar Gateway. Ooh, I love CubeSats. Me too. They're great. I love the Lunar Gateway. This is great. Most people love the Lunar Gateway, as we'll, t- we'll talk about in a minute. The Lunar Gateway's orbit, proposed orbit, is is actually really uh, pretty interesting. There's actually not a spacecraft in it now. It is going to be uh, a, a halo orbit, which is elliptical, polar, uh, elliptical and polar in nature. So if you think about here on Earth, launch from Vandenberg to get into polar orbit, nor- North Pole, South Pole, North Pole, South Pole. Think about that at the moon, but the big difference is that this would be uh, elliptical. So the closest point to the moon is over one of the poles, mm. and the, the most distant point is over the other pole. This is what's planned for the Lunar Gateway. This hasn't been done before. There's not a spacecraft in that orbit now. And NASA wants to make sure that there are no surprises that there. This would be uh, stable to use. Like the International Space Station, they don't want to have to adjust the orbit of the gateway uh, very often. And so they want to make sure that this is a a good plan moving forward. And what's a better way to test something than a little CubeSat buddy, a little CubeSat friend? So there is a $13 million contract to Advanced Space, a company out of Colorado, to develop the, I'm going to get all the way through this name, Cislunar, Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, or Capstone. I give this. I give this like four and a half stars for the name. Maybe five stars. Very good. Very good. That's a backronym. That's a backronym. But it's gold star. It's good. Capstone. Uh, this is a twelve-unit CubeSat. Remember we've spoken about that. How CubeSats can be kind of built together in this Frankenstein monster. So 12-unit CubeSat that would launch uh, by the end of 2020, again, to investigate this polar orbit to make sure that it is stable. There's no uh, surprises uh, in that orbit. And to test a navigation system, and this is not something that I thought about, but that's why I'm just a podcaster and there are real people who actually do this stuff for a living. There's, of course, no there's no ground uh stations on the moon to measure your location against right you've you have to do it some other way and so part of capstone the the navigation experiment part of the capstone name is to use nasa's lunar reconnaissance orbiter and measure its position relative to that and the distance Hmm. to that as it changes over time to allow the cubesat to figure out its position again with no reliance on ground stations that's pretty cool also, probably a good thing to know before you build a space station and send it to the moon, right? Got to be able to tell where you are. So Capstone's a really important step in verifying that the Lunar Gateway concept as currently designed can move forward. And, of course, there's 
you know, always the question of how this thing gets launched. It could be on a commercial rocket. It could, it could be jettisoned by Orion on an Artemis mission, but that won't be by the end of 2020. So yeah, probably on a commercial rocket of some sort. Yeah, you would think. You would uh, there's think, no, but no really other way at that point. It's uh, it's an important. This is when we were doing all of our Apollo stuff, and we talked about the early days of Apollo. It was a lot of ground laying like this, which is like this is not exciting, but we need to know this, like for later. And uh, and so this is a cool thing, and it's got a good name. I love it. I'm 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 loving Capstone. I'm rooting for Capstone now. How about that? Mm-hmm. It's not like those other space missions where I'm like, boo. <laughs> no, that's not true. But I like it. I, I I'm I'm excited about this. This is a this is a cool thing to send a a a, a, a test vehicle like this to the moon and have it uh, try out all this stuff that we're going to need to know and get some lunar GPS, which is good. Yeah, Capstone. Capstone. I like it. I promised that we would circle back to the the politics of Artemis. Oh boy! And I put this at the end because we were talking about the lunar gateway. It could have gone earlier, just where it landed in this in the show notes. So, despite Capstone and these other projects moving forward, there are some who would like the lunar gateway to go away. And th- this came up in two places recently uh, in a congressional hearing. Oklahoma Democratic Representative and the committee chair, uh, Kendra Horn, as well as our friend Mo Brooks, because Mo is always cranky about everything relating yeah. to space, the Alabama mm-hmm. Republican. Um, they they showed skepticism about private rockets and company private companies building the Lunar Gateway. There's nothing really new there, I don't think, especially from Brooks. But they also <laughs> pushed NASA on the exploration upper stage, which, as you mentioned earlier, the Senate version of the NASA budget includes a bunch of money for. NASA hasn't requested that yet, but that's a thing that's that's happening. People want the 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 EUS to to go. But this gets a little more interesting when we talk about Doug Cook, who is a former NASA associate administrator. He is now a consultant. We're going to get back to that. He wrote this this uh, op ed in the Hill saying that the fastest and the best way to go to the lunar surface was for NASA to build its own lander, finish the exploration upper stage, and bypass the lunar gateway in its entirety. Right now, the plan is to have the lunar gateway there, take Orion up on the SLS, dock the Orion to the lunar gateway, you go through the lunar gateway, on the other end of it is a lander, you get in the lander, go to the moon, come back up, get back in the Orion, come home. Obviously different than Apollo. What Cook is suggesting is basically Apollo 2.0. Get the the larger SLS ready so you can take a lander and a capsule with you all at once. And that's the way uh, that, that Cook says it should be done. And, and he argues that it would be faster and cheaper. I don't know if anyone knows if that's actually true or not, but NASA has is paving the way for the Lunar Gateway uh, to be the, the way this is done. Where this gets interesting and really why I bring it up, normally I wouldn't have brought the story up because people are, you know, Mo Brooks is, unless it goes through Alabama, he doesn't want any, anything to do with it. The reason I brought this up was to talk about Cook. Cook is a consultant and is on the payroll for $465,000 from Boeing since 2017 or so. So made lots of money at Boeing. Boeing, of course, is building SLS, but has not been awarded any work for the lunar or the ga- uh, the lunar lander, or the gateway. And you can see how he gets from point A to point B pretty easily. And I, I bring that up for two reasons. One, I think it's important when our listeners and, and people interested in this stuff read these op-eds and read these articles, you really, it, it's worth taking the time to understand the point of view that they're coming with. Because while Cook does make some interesting, and honestly some good points in his article, the fact that he has this Boeing connection, for me at least, sort of discounts his argument. And I don't know if that's fair or not. It's just how, how yeah. I feel personally. And that should be, I mean, this is the thing. We talked about this a little bit, Mike and I, on Upgrade, the technology podcast I do here at Relay, and um, uh, about like leaks from tech companies. Mm-hmm. It's always good, always to ask yourself, who is this? What do they tr- what do they have to gain by leaking this information or writing an op-ed or whatever? It's always worth it. Doesn't mean that their opinion isn't valid. 
but always good to know where they're coming from and why they might be motivated to hold a, a, a specific position. And this is a really great example of that, 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 uh, you know, is Boeing just unhappy? Does Boeing, is Boeing concerned that it's, uh, it's money that it's getting for SLS is not going to, um, not going to continue if they don't pump up the, uh, expeditions upper stage and all of that. Like maybe, Maybe I, you know, I'm not quite sure what to believe because I think on the one hand, the argument that this is how we did it with Apollo is strong because it is. Um, On the other hand, that's not a good enough reason because, you know, maybe having a more modular approach in the long run is better. Like, I'd like to see the arguments pro and con, but just because this is how Apollo did it, I'm, I'm not sure... Also, leaning into the deadline thing might get you applause from the president. Who knows? But like having this be sustainable is part of the goal here. And the nice thing about Gateway is it gives um, not just the U.S., but international partners um, some. There was a story about how Australia is getting involved in this planning, too, and Australia's space agency. And you may see a bunch of space agencies sign up to build things for Gateway as sort of the next project after ISS. And that gets them, you know, all kind of like a a possibility of getting to the moon at some point. And it becomes a shared international venture. And that's, I think, easier to do if you have Gateway, where you can pool resources above and then you can build landers and you can build uh, spacecraft to go to Gateway. And like, I think there's a vision there that is pretty solid certainly not above criticism but um you know it's it's an interesting contrast where it's like doing it the old way is tried and true but it's also you know the old way and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way for now it's complicated stuff man yeah again i'm i'm kind of okay with not being uh the nasa administrator (laughs) don't come don't come asking us for that i think at some point NASA has to do something to try to pull everyone in line behind its vision, like we mentioned earlier. It's fine. I'm, it's fine. I'm not discounting like Cook has a perfectly good right to share his opinion. And I think it's good that people do do that, even if that opinion may or may not be formed by who's paying you. Yeah. But I, I, I do think that NASA has not done a good enough job at explaining what Artemis like the components of Artemis and why they're important and why the other ways it could be done aren't the way they should go. I think a lot, I think most people can get behind the idea of we want to go to Mars, going back to the moon makes sense. Even though, you know, just a couple weeks ago, Trump questioned that again in the Oval office, like you signed the whatever, not, not going down that, that rabbit hole today. I think most people can understand the, the reason for going to the moon to Mars. I think most people understand that we need a goal to do that or it will never happen. 2024 is very bold, as we've talked about, but it may just be the right amount of bold to make it happen. But I think the the nuts and bolts of it being unclear at this point in, you know, late 2019, I think that get lets I think that leads people down the road of thinking of, well, NASA actually doesn't know what they're doing. They haven't made these decisions. Or if they have they're not for good reasons. I don't know how Brian Stein fixes that, but I feel like they've got to do it because you're not going to get the public or Congress behind your vision for how this works without being really clear about what that vision is. I just don't think they've done that. And I hope that they do. And the reality is Brian Stein could be running out of time, right? There's a presidential election in a little over a year. And if the administration changes hands, then, uh, Whoever comes in after Brian Stein has to to pick this up, and if NASA and if he's right. done a good job in the next year of laying out why this is the way to go, it, it is more likely that NASA will continue to move in that direction as opposed to getting jerked around again. And all that's big and hard, but I feel like it's got to be done. Yeah, that's the thing that that is the most concerning. I think is. If you don't lay the groundwork now and get everybody on side, what's going to happen is a a new administration, if a new administration comes in in 2021, the, you know, what do they do? Do they just pull the plug and say, this whole Artemis thing is stupid? 
let's go to Mars or whatever. And it's like, oh, we've already got things going, which is one of the reasons they've got things going. And they've, they've got contracts and things is to sort of like say, no, 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 let's just keep pushing here. Even if you change it, like if 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 somebody else is the White House in, in 2021, you can say, don't you want us to land on the moon <laughs> during your term? Like, let's keep this going. And it's like, all right. Uh, but the risk is that there's not enough momentum and it all falls apart and we're back to nothing again. And, and, you know, yet again, people have been sold on it. That said, I do wonder sometimes if the reason that, um, there's not a clear story here is fear that the president of the United States will see the story and not like it. And so they'd rather just kind of keep it under wraps and the truth is like we've already seen those comments and tweets where it's like does he not it was your plan and now you're criticizing it like his relationship to this seems so um perilous and i again i would imagine that a lot of people in the u.s government are dealing with this exact same thing which is like you know please don't have a segment about me on the tv show that the president watches right Mm -hmm. um and that's managing up. I mean, on a big, on an enormous scale, it's managing up. You have a problematic manager who doesn't really understand what you do um, and is enthusiastic about the thing you've sold him on. How do you navigate that? And it's like, don't mention the things we haven't sold him on. Like, I've been there. Not sure. at this extreme level, but I've been there. So uh, I wonder, I also hunger for Artemis details. And I do wonder sometimes if the reason we don't have them is because they're they're concerned that if they get into the details, then it'll never happen. I don't know. Well, we'll see uh, next fortnight if they figured it out. All right. Yeah, sure. That'll be the, <laughs> the, the resolution of the SLS segment. It'll be uh, next week. If you want to find show notes for the topics and stories we mentioned and spoke about, you can head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 108. While you're there, you can do a couple of things. You can follow a link to our blog over on Tumblr, where we post links to stories and videos and stuff in between episodes. A lot of stuff that doesn't make it on the show, we talk about there. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Snell, and you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.